Good morning. I will say, despite the uh, hour of sleep taken away from you, most of you are very pleasant this morning. So, uh, very excited to see that for sure. So, uh, hey, today we're going to continue in our series entitled To the Married and Unmarried, and this is part five. Uh, so, instead of reviewing the first four parts, I'm just going to say that if you missed any one of them, it is well worth your while, your time, uh, your attention to go back to the church website. Watch it, listen to it. I think there's a lot of practical applications, a lot of good things that we can learn for the married and unmarried, which is really pretty much includes everybody in the room. So do that, all right? So today is part five, and the title of it is Things I've Learned. Hmm. Could be a real short message. Could be a really long sermon. Uh, but it's going to deal with things that I've learned about married and unmarried people. I'm going to talk about some things from my own personal life. Scary. Sherry is not here. She comes to the 11 o'clock service, so that'll be more of a testing time there. Uh, but it's also going to talk about things that I've learned from the lives of other people as well. Um, I'm certainly not going to say everything that could be said, but I am going to take a chance at um, four things. Uh, I'm going to put them in proverbial form for you, a Proverbs being a short sentence that says a generally true thing and gives advice. So that's kind of the way I want to approach these four things. So here we go. I'm going to start with two Proverbs that barely made the sermon. Now, they they didn't barely make it because they're not important. Literally, they made it just because of time constraints. And I think we got started late, so maybe I should skip them. I'm not going to. I'm going to do it. Um, Let me do it. Uh, Literally... I wrote the sermon with two main points, two main proverbs that I wanted to pass on to you. And then I said, okay, how much time do I think I have left? And then that's how many other proverbs would get tacked on to this. Well, it turns out two are being added on to it. That's it, just two. So there's a total of four, and here they go. Uh, the first two are both founded on what I call the common sense verses of the Bible, like Proverbs 3.21. I have it for you right here. My child, which is really everybody, just like everyone here is unmarried and married. Everyone is a child as well, so this verse is for us. My child, don't lose sight of common sense and discernment. Hang on to them. So that my first two Proverbs, if you will, are going to come out of that type of a verse. Here's the first proverb that barely made the list, and it's this. To the married and unmarried... I have learned it is better to focus more on the days of marriage than on the wedding day. There's an outline point for that on that note. There you go. That's what I have learned. There is enormous pressure, energy, stress, drama, and not to mention a whole lot of money that goes into making a wedding day the best day of your life. And to me, I'm just saying me, That makes no sense. Who wants a best day when you can have a lifetime of best days? It's way better to prepare for a lifetime of best days, being married, than it is to put this over-the-top emphasis and focus on a single wedding day. I have watched this. I've observed this in my life. I am all for a nice wedding, but it boggles my mind the amount of energy and emotion and money that gets spent for this single best day. To this point in my life, I believe the next fact that I'm going to say you tell you is true. I believe it to the best of my knowledge that this is true. That this point in my life, I have heard every bride except one 
And by every bride, I mean every bride where I've gone to the wedding or I've performed the wedding. Every bride except one, and this includes my wife 32 years ago. She said it multiple times. It includes my daughter, who has also said this time and time again. All but one has said, I just want to be done with this wedding prep. I just want to be married. What happened to this being the best day of your life? That doesn't sound like a best day of your life kind of comment. And personally, with three daughters still to go, I hope to break the cycle for them. I have a daughter in attendance. Note that one. Proverb number two. To the married and unmarried, I have learned it is better to have a shorter engagement than a longer engagement. To me, this is just the kind of common sense and discernment not to lose sight of. The shorter the engagement, the better. Now let me explain. I realize there could be exceptions to this. But when two people both love Jesus, see how to pick your next crush for that point, but when two people both love Jesus, when two people both know they love each other and want to share and spend the rest of their lives for each other, when two people have all the basics of life covered, basics I mean like a job, a place to live, and a vehicle, get married. Get married sooner than later. The temptation to wait until you have all the upgraded possessions That's a bad temptation. The idea of, well, after we make this purchase, or well, after we save this much more money, or well, after we get the next promotion, then we'll get married. No. No, 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 no. In a weird but very, very, very satisfying way, getting married and doing life together before all the pieces of possessions and whatnots have already been collected is an amazing adventure together. There is something about building a life together that includes hardships as well as accomplishments that solidify and strengthen a marriage. It's okay to start with a starter house and then build up if needed. Truth be told, I'm still in my starter house. (laughs) It's okay to eat at home. Ramen, ramen, noodles. And then build up and go out to eat for steak and potatoes. It's okay to call vacation a day or a weekend at the beach and then build up to go see Europe for two weeks. It's okay to drive an older car. Build up. Then buy a newer one. It's okay. This idea of having everything already possessed with all the bells and whistles and then getting married is... (laughs) But there is a big cultural pressure to do all that. Now, I am not standing here saying, have nothing and just live on love. Many a song has been written that way. That won't work. You will starve. (laughs) But I am saying that if you know you have picked the right person 
and you have all the basics covered, like a job and a place to live and a vehicle, go for it. After 50 years of marriage, you will not turn to your spouse and say, we never got those jet skis. I knew we should have waited another year before we got married. You're not going to do that. And oh, let me throw out there. I have learned that sex is a big drawing card to getting married. And it should be. If you're a Christian, you know that the Bible teaches that sex is only blessed by God, approved by God in marriage. A shorter engagement period means shorter time of temptation. I'm glad so many people agree with that point. Now, after some of you hearing this, I expect an uptick of weddings around here. But they need to be simple and nice, focusing more on the marriage than on the wedding. Okay, those are the two Proverbs that barely made the list. Now we're going to get to the real sermon. Okay? Proverb number three, and this is probably the most important thing that I will say this morning. To the married and unmarried, I have learned the most important relational commitment a person can make is committing to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or not. Whether a person commits to marriage or a person commits to being single, neither is most important compared to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. It's way up there on the important list. It might be number two on the list of whether I get married or stay single. Those are big decisions to make. They are big commitments to make, but it is not the most important commitment to make. They don't even compare to the importance of being in a relationship with Jesus or not. Amen. Okay, I will. Here's why. (laughs) Being in a relationship with Jesus is the only way to know God. And you say, well, everyone knows God's existence. That is true. Romans 1, 19 and 20 makes that really plain. It says, since what we can know about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For, he, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Everybody knows about God. But knowing God exists and knowing God personally are two completely different things. And I want to be very careful here not to make this sound like this is a one-sided relationship when it comes to knowing God. Because we should never come to God with this attitude of, what can you do for me mentality? But the fact is, knowing God personally has some pretty amazing benefits. Like, it does seem really one-sided. Matter of fact, Jesus, God himself, says pretty much the same thing, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. The wise man must not boast in his wisdom. The strong man must not boast in his strength. The wealthy man must not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And the only way to know and understand God is to be in a relationship with Jesus. And we know that because that's what Jesus said. John 14, 6, Jesus told Thomas and the other disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, God, 
except through me. Paul preached the same thing in 1 Timothy 2.5. He told Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus. The only way to know God personally is, <clears throat> excuse me, is to personally be in a relationship with Jesus. Here's another reason. Being in a relationship with Jesus is the only way to be forgiven and saved from sins. The only way. Acts 4.12, Peter speaking to some Jewish leaders when he said this, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. What's the name Peter was referring to? Jesus. Jesus himself, John 8, 24, he was talking to more religious leaders when he said this, therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, the Messiah, you will die in your sins. Here's another reason. Being in a relationship with Jesus is the only way to have eternal life. Ever heard of John three sixteen? Read it with me. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only and one and only son. I'm sorry, let's do that over. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I was trying to quote out of the King James, which is where I learned. First John 5.12 and 13. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John 5, 24, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. John 3, 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I could go on and on because the Bible goes on and on, making the case there is no relationship more important to make than to have a commitment, a relationship with Jesus. And that kind of leads us to an important question. How does a person have a committed relationship with Jesus? Turn in your Bibles to Luke. Jesus answers this very question. In Luke 14, Jesus is going to lay out the terms for what it means to be in a relationship with him. And at this point in Luke, it's important to note, there were great crowds that were following him. Everyone loved the miracles. Everyone loved the healings. Everyone loved the free food. Jesus was very trendy. Like if social media existed back then, he would have gobs and gobs of followers. He was the talk of the town. But he knew their hearts. He knew that they desired just the gifts just the, the benefits, but we're not interested in a committed relationship. And so he explains now in Luke 14 what it takes to be in relationship with him. Follow along with me. Verses 28 through 33. For which of you, 
wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it. All the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not while the other is afar off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, everyone who does not say goodbye to all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. How does a person make a commitment to be in relationship with Jesus? It sounds as if Jesus is saying, you count the cost. You consider the options. You list the pros and cons. And in some unique way, God has this ability to draw you into this commitment and into this relationship or not. The most important thing that I'm going to say to all married and unmarried people here today is this. Committing to a relationship with Jesus Christ or not is the most important commitment you will ever, ever make. Proverb number four. To the married and unmarried, I have learned, marriage is like making muffins. You have to follow the recipe. If you are a protein guy or girl, marriage is like making meatloaf. You have to follow the recipe. How well you make marriage, muffins, and meatloaf all depends on the quality of the ingredients and how well you follow the recipe. I do very little cooking or baking. I just like to eat. (laughs) But when I get ambitious and my cooking juices start flowing to make pancakes or Rice Krispie treats or chili, that's all I know how to make. I am glued to the recipe because I don't want to leave out an ingredient. Like, I don't know it enough to just wing it. I have to know the recipe. If I leave something out, it's not going to look right. The pancakes are going to be flat, not fluffy. The the Rice Krispie treats, if I leave something out, they are going to be, like, hard and crunchy. Worst of all, I'm going to leave something out, and it's not going to taste good. Chili, bland, and boring, and my taste buds are like, oh, man. In the same way, I have learned, I have not mastered, as Sherry and my kids will attest, but I have learned we need to be glued, fixed to the recipes that make for a marriage relationship healthy and strong. And if we don't follow these recipes, it's going to be bad. Flat pancake, bad. (laughs) Bland, boring chili, bad. If you want your marriage, like you want your muffins and meatloaf, warm, mouth-watering, savoring, good to the last bite, you have to follow the proven recipes. Take your Bible, which is like a cookbook. There are lots of recipes that I could show you. 
I'm going to show you just one because I think it has one main ingredient that is fabulous and needed and very high quality for your marriage, for all your relationships. The recipe is found in 1 Corinthians 13. And here's what it says. If I speak human or angelic languages, but do not love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Anybody want to hear what that sounds like? I love that I can't play the drums. But this is it. Your voice sounds like this. That's pretty pointed to me. When I read that over and over again, and I thought, oh, church has drums and a cymbal. Let's make for a great example. That's what love looks like. That's what it looks like if there's no love. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I cannot move mountains but do not love, I am nothing. And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast, sounds like really good stuff to do. But do not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, which means love is not impatient. Love is kind, which means it is not mean. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Would anyone like to take a guess at what the main ingredient in the recipe is? Answer? Correct. Good job. Eight times in eight verses, the ingredient love is mentioned. And there's two main points that I think we have to have here. You can't leave love out of the recipe and expect a good result. You can't leave it out and expect a good relationship. And not only... Do you have to have a whole lot of love in this recipe? It's got to be the right kind of love. It's important for us to acknowledge that. Like, love is a word that we use an awful lot these days. I love my wife. I love my dog. I love my team. I love my job. I love my shoes. I love that show. I love, 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 love. We say this all the time, but all of those loves don't mean the same thing. In our language, love, love. But in the Greek there are four meanings to it. And I put a little chart for us together because it's important for us to get this. Just a quick breakdown of these four categories of love. Eros, storge, phileo, and agape. Eros is where we get the English word for erotic. It's often associated with the expression of, of sexual love or feelings of arousal that are shared between two people. There's a physical attraction to one another. This is the love that the Bible teaches is a good thing inside of marriage. It's what also produce, makes reproduction possible. But outside of marriage, it is distorted and sinful. When, when sexual sins like adultery and fornication and homosexuality are mentioned in the Bible, it is associated with this kind of love of eros. The second is storge, one we don't use very often, but it's associated with like natural, effect, natural affections, Family love, like the way a parent loves a child or a child loves a parent. And then there's phileo, refers to brotherly love, friendship love. Let's hang out together. Let's eat together. Let's play together. And then there's agape, 
the most powerful love, most noble love, most sacrificial love. And agape love has much more to do than feelings, but it is an action of the will. It acts out the will. So again, now, in light of 1 Corinthians 13 and seeing this chart of the four loves, it matters which one we are talking about. Anyone want to take a guess of which one we are at? Primarily, it is agape love. Right? It's important to get the right ingredients. You make chocolate chip muffins. Not all chocolate chips are equal. You got to get the right ones, the best ones. And that is key for us to know this here. I realize some of you are way more comfortable in the kitchen and preparing food than I am. As a matter of fact, you don't have to have the recipe out and glued to it because you know it. And I was thinking about that. So there's two things that uh, I want to recommend here to you. One, I recommend that you and your spouse, or if you are thinking maybe someday you'll be married, or if you just want to be like a really great human being, memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Memorize it. Grasp what love really is. The reality is every marriage in this room can improve on knowing more about love and knowing how to better love. It's possible, second thing is, that we become so familiar with the recipe that we can lose our focus. And and we start just, uh, we're, we're close to the measurement, but it's not exact. If you make your muffins that way, they're going to come out different all the time. It's the same thing for our marriages. We can't lose focus. We can't become careless with the little things. And for that, I want to show you a chart that uh, Sherry and I actually learned or encountered and went through uh, once when we went to uh, a marriage discipleship class ourselves. Can I see that next chart? It's a triangle shape. Yeah, there it is. Um, And I will say this, that... I'm a big believer. I think, I think everyone should be working and investing in their marriage. And so go to, go to marriage classes. Go to marriage counseling, even if you're not on the rocks. Go if you're starting to see it. But sadly, a lot of times, we go when the whole house is on fire. And there's so much built up anger and unforgiveness built up that it's hard to put out those flames. So I just want to say, like, be proactive uh, with your marriage in this. So this chart was a way uh, that was used to show the importance of how our relationship with God so often determines our relationship with each other. And so the parallel is this, that as I work at improving and working with the relationship of God, getting to know God more and more and more, that in my life I would progress upward, Right? And that she, my wife, Sherry, would be doing the same thing. And so in actuality, what happens is we start out this far apart, but as we climb together, what happens to us? Get closer. And so that was the application that was used for us. I thought it was very helpful. I think it's a great way to go back and evaluate your marriage. Like today, over lunch. Hey, babe, where do you think you're at with God? I think about right here. Where do you think you're at with God? Oh, I think about right here. Oh, we're finding some trouble spots. Here we go. Maybe if we are... Working together at our relationship with God, we also get closer together. Now, I have used this. If you come to say to me, hey, I want to talk to you, Doug, about my marriage, I'm going to, I'm going to say, well, where do you think you are? 
I am shocked at the number of times that we do this, and I say, well, I think I'm right here. And where do you think your husband is? Oh, about here. <laughs> and then I'll ask the husband, where do you think you are? Oh, you know, I'm not doing great, but I'm, I'm okay. And where's your, and where's your wife? Mm, well, I'm right there. I, I am shocked at the number of times. I think I would just like, to the council, I'd be like, oh, she's way up here. I know I'm struggling. It's me, it's me, it's me. Because I know me. I like, I know it's me. But it seems like there's a lot of times that we get to this point and we go, it's all the other person's fault. And I will tell you, if that is the, your marriage, if that is your, one of your first opening statements, you're in trouble. It's your fault. Because it's my fault. Because it's her fault. Forgiveness has to be another key ingredient, and agape love does that. It gets to forgiving, it gets to apologizing, and it gets to building over and over and over again. That's all I've got. I've, I've lived more years as a married person than as a single person now. Yeah, amen to that. Um, and I, I just hope that these four things or one of these four things that I shared today will, will help you personally or will be something that you can pass on to someone else. If and when you plan on getting married, common sense says to focus more on your married days ahead than on the wedding days. If possible, try to have a shorter engagement period rather than a longer one. Committing to a relationship with Jesus is the most important thing a person can do, and it's the most important thing I can say today. And marriage is like making muffins. Use the right ingredients. Use agape love. And you'll experience many, many happy days of marriage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth and your word. I just pray that, I get, that it makes sense to people, that uh, this will resonate with us. I know that even in preparing through it, um, confessing that I need your grace, I need your forgiveness, I need your help. As I love Sherry, God, I pray for all those who are in that season of like preparing for marriage and going to be married, and that they would um, just heavily consider the common sense verses of your word and truly discover like the purpose of the marriage is to put your glory on display. For the married folks in here, give us an abundance amount of patience. Let us not keep records of wrongs. Let us rejoice in righteousness. Let us be kind. Lord, I ask that you'd, you'd make us be people who are like really fast at repenting and confessing, not only to you, but to our spouse. I thank you for your word. What a great recipe you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.